return. So this is the curse, the essence of the curse. It's uh, something that unfolds as, as life goes on. And, and he died, and he died, and he died. You see that all through Genesis. You see finally the flood. We see the judgments of God all through the history of Israel. We see ultimately the judgment of God on the Son of God on the cross. So we see death comes, and this curse is unfolding and has unfolded throughout history and in everybody's life. And so what is the hope? Ah, the Savior. The verse just before, 315. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, that is all the evil people whose hearts are hardened against God, and hers, that would be those who have the grace of God, he, that would be Jesus, will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. He will have to pay, he will have pain, but you will die. You will be destroyed. He will do something that will be difficult for him. It'll cause him pain. He will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Now, this is a description, of course, of Christ, the second Adam. And the battlefield is the world under the curse. Christ comes into the world, and right away, Herod tries to kill him. And it starts there, and it continues all through his life. He's dealing with the effects of the fall, the evil in this world, all through his life. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses is everyone that hangs on a tree. So he has to endure this evil and deal with it perfectly, and then ultimately it culminates in the cross and the awful devastation of God's abandonment of him, the internal awful, terrible judgment of God on the world. He takes. He takes it himself in order to redeem us. And that tree, the cross, now becomes the tree of life for us. We now have access to life through Jesus. He takes upon himself the curse so that we can take the blessing. So the cross becomes the place where we get happiness and joy again in our hearts, a relationship with the living God. Jesus takes the flaming swords into himself. His hands are pierced, his side is rent. And from that, because of that, we have access into the Holy of Holies through his body, his suffering. What a wonderful thing what, that Christ has done. But he does all of this to redeem us because of this awful fall that has taken place. His perfect obedience has to be involved in this. If he has sinned one time, none of this could happen. He has to be perfect in every situation that he's placed in all through those 30 years of life. World War II, six years, multiple battles on sea, land, air, all over the world, 
thousands and thousands of battles and people in dealing with situations where they have to function in such a way as to survive and kill the enemy and so on. You think about that. Jesus, though, in all through his life, battle after battle after battle, uh, things that we can't even know about. We know a little glimpse of some of the things he goes through. But every single day, he has to deal with life and deal with it perfectly. Every single day. 30 years. And then give that life as a ransom for many. That's a wonderful thing that Jesus has done. I think about his obedience uh, absorbing the curse. He has to take on himself all of the effects of the fall in one way or another. Well, we know about the thorns that were pressed into his head. Pain is mentioned here. We know about his physical pains, the stripes, the crucifixion. But what about those internal pains that are also a large part of the effect of the fall? That's what we want to look at today. How did he take on this part of the curse? Uh, sweat in the garden, he sweats blood. We know that. But what about the uh, other disharmony of this world and the pain of that disharmony? You know, that's included here in the curse. In Genesis 3.11, God says, you ha as God, have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man says, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit. There used to be perfect harmony between the man and the woman. But now after the fall, there's a problem. There's a competition for power. There's a desire to control the other person. And we see that here when he talks to Eve. You will desire to control your husband. But he will rule over you. This has to do with the competition between people. I mean, it just starts right here. And, it, and you see it all through life now, uh, with Cain and Abel and on down through history. Competition, uh, butting heads, wanting control. This kind of thing is a part of the pain of life. A large part of the pain of life has to do with the contentions between human beings. And this part of the fall is something that Jesus himself had to take on as well. Internal pain, dissension, betrayal by his disciples, the evil that he faced, the hard-heartedness of people. He's dealing with this all through his life. Perfectly, though, in such a way as to become one who can now deal with sin completely by suffering as the spotless Lamb of God on the cross. The pain internally, the mental pain of this life. In the book of Proverbs, you have a number of statements to try to help people understand life. And one of the pains is a wayward child. A wayward child. I look out at you and I know something of the history of each of you. And I know that all of you have a certain level of pain due to a wayward 
child. You see this, Proverbs 17, 25, a foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. Proverbs 17, 21, to have a fool for a son brings grief. There is no joy for the father of a fool. So we have this connection to those that we love, that we've born, and we want things for them, and we long for things to happen in their lives, and we want them to have a certain way of thinking and moving through life that will honor God, and yet, at times, we see that's not the case. And it hurts us. It pains us, just like physical pain, almost worse than physical pain, because it's a continual thing. There's absolutely no relief from it. It's a burden. This is a part of the inward pain of life. Think about difficult people. Proverbs says, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Well, it could have said husband as well, or brother or sister. Ill-tempered, people that are difficult, you find them at work. You find them everywhere. I mean, you yourself are a difficult person half the time. In other words, like this is a large part of what makes life heavy, hard. This is why people, uh, you know, some people don't even like to have any con contact with people. They go off into the wilderness. And some people pick jobs where they don't have to deal with people. You know, it's like people are difficult. Uh, like you know, Seinfeld says, they're the worst. People, they're the worst. Difficult people. What about unfulfilled hopes? Whether it has to do with a business or an enterprise or uh, a child or a person, a, a marriage. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred. How about an untrustworthy person? Proverbs 10, 26. As vinegar to the teeth, and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. Another one, like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. People who promised they would do something for you or, or said that they would be there at a certain time. Uh, people who fail you, that hurts, that hurts us. It's just a part of uh, the existence mentally uh, in a fallen world. Painful existence. Heart pain is horrible. Heart pain can be worse than physical pain. The troubles of my heart have multiplied, Psalm 25. Free me from my anguish. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. You see this all through the Psalms. It's the heart that hurts. People sometimes... They say they die of a broken heart. I looked it up. It says in a Cleveland Clinic, there is such a thing. It can happen. It's a small n number of people, but when you get all this rush of uh, the endocrine glands and all the different things that happen when you go through trauma and grief, sometimes you just, your heart just has, it breaks. It just can't take it. And so physical pain is one thing, but mental anguish is another. Now let's look at some of the heart pains of Christ that are revealed to us in the Gospels. Think about the unbelief of the people closest to Jesus. 
His own brothers, we are told, did not believe in him. John 7, 5. They were trying to give him some advice about how to run his campaign. <laughs> uh, but it says, the text says his own brothers didn't believe on him. No. That, that had to be way on him, don't you think? Uh, and then the people in Nazareth, they were furious when they heard him speak and said certain things that just rubbed them the wrong way. They drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill, and tried to throw him over the cliff. How did that affect him mentally? How did he handle that? Wasn't that a disappointment on his part? He grew up with these people. He interacted with them daily on a regular basis, and yet they had this reaction when he claims that he's the Messiah. Uh, this must have hurt him. How about the disciples? Number two, misunderstanding him and misunderstanding the things he was saying and misbehaving. We have certain you know, evidences of this in the Gospels. Like, for instance, in Luke 9.55, the disciples uh, are offended by the Samaritans who didn't receive them gladly and must have somehow uh, you know, offended them. And so two of them say, uh, should we call down fire from heaven and have them destroyed? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. You don't know the manner of spirit that you are. You know, this isn't right. We're not here to kill people. We're here to redeem people. You know, so he rebukes them. And you wonder, what did Jesus feel at that moment? Well, it, when they were trying to bring, people were trying to bring little children to Jesus for him to put their hand, his hand on them and bless them, we find that uh, the disciples refused to let them come. And Jesus rebukes them. When he saw this, it says, the text, he was indignant. Jesus was indignant at this and th feeling like, what's the matter with you guys? This is okay. What's wrong with you? He was indignant, irritated, vexed, annoyed, and he rebukes his disciples. And so here you have Jesus dealing with life and feeling the pain of this misunderstanding and this um, bad thinking on the part of his disciples. Then at one point, he turns to them because of their lack of faith and their inability to heal this person, and he'd given them powers of healing. And he says to them, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? That's Jesus' words to his disciples. In, so what we're seeing here is in Jesus this feeling of pain, internal pain, due to the behavior of the disciples. How about the Garden of Gethsemane? He asked the three to come and pray with him internally and just help him along. And then he comes out and he says, uh, could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? In other words, like, there's certain pain here in his mind, in his heart, his anguish of what's going on with these disciples. And this is just little glimpses of what must have gone on all through his life. I mean, John says, you know, if the, all the things that Jesus said and did were written, you know, the, all the libraries in the world couldn't 
contain them. So, I mean, you know, we're getting little tastes of the pain internally of Jesus in reference to his disciples. You could also look at the dispute between Martha and Mary, uh, the dispute between the disciples about who's the greatest, uh, the fact that all of them fled when he was arrested, the fact that Peter denied him, I don't even know the man, uh, the betrayal of Judas. Think of all these things. These things hurt him, but he handled them perfectly and justly and righteously. How about the Pharisees and their hardness of heart? In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, before he heals somebody on the Sabbath, he looks around at them in anger, it says, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So when he saw this hardness of heart of people who, even in the face of these incredible miracles, continued to reject him, he, it hurt him. It hurt him. In anger, deeply distressed. How about institutional evil? When he goes to the temple and he sees what's going on there, this uh, Annas's Bazaar, as, is, as it was called, where the uh, money changers are gouging the people, uh, where they're selling animals and doing all this stuff in areas that they shouldn't be doing, what does Jesus do? In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and people sitting at the tables. He made a whip. Of course, drove them out of the temple area. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Jesus was upset at this injustice, this using of something religious to aggrandize an elite few of leaders and fill their pockets with money. That's what was going on. And uh, he was upset at it. And this is just one of the injustices that institutionally he must have seen all through his life as a person who is in the Jewish community under the thumb, if you will, of Rome. He knew about Herod. I mean, after all, Herod, the one who had uh, had his cousin's head chopped off, he knew all about it. Oh, he knew all about uh, Tiberius you know, in Rome. He knew about Pilate. He knew from history as he read his Bible all about Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, uh, Sennacherib. You know, he knew about the political situation and all the injustice that was associated with it all over the world at at his time and all through history. He must have seen this and been upset at it. It must have bothered him just as much as the things that were going on in the temple. I'm just saying now with us, we have trouble in our minds when we think about the world and what's going on in the world. We get upset at the political situation or the things that certain people do. I don't know. It doesn't matter who. You can fill in the blank. But all that upsetness that you feel is something that he felt. He felt the same way. He was upset at injustice, unfairness, in things that were wrong, uh, tyranny, uh, using power unjustly, and so on. He was just as upset as you and I get. And so he has that feeling inside of him. And then 
the pervasive effects of sin, I think we see this most when he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and as he sees Mary weeping and all the Jews who had come along who were there weeping because of the death of Lazarus, it says in the text, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. B.B. Warfield, a great theologian, puts it this way. He was moved with indignation and raged in himself. He was angry. He was upset. Because he looked around and he saw what was going on here. And this was sort of like a, a picture of what is going on all over the world in his mind. And it bothers him. He feels the pain of it. The spectacle, here's how B.B. Warfield puts it, the spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he contemplates the general misery of the entire race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. That would be Satan. His soul is held in rage, and he advances to the tomb as a champion who pre prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. Yes, the second Adam must face this serpent, and he will crush his head. And we know this has taken place because he raises Lazarus, and then he dies and rises again himself. He is the great conqueror of the evil one. But this feeling of distress, this pain, this awful burden is something that he took on himself, and he endured it perfectly. Now that needs to be said. We find this in Hebrews. We have one who's been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So that he deals with this in such a way that God is still pleased, totally pleased with him. I mean, if you're not upset at just evil, then there's something wrong with your moral compass. You need to be personally upset. But sometimes our upsetness goes beyond what it should. I think about Moses. You know, he was told to speak to the rock. Instead, he hits it twice. He says, shall we bring water out of the rock? I mean, he, he was angry with the people, and that was okay. But, I mean, he went beyond what was appropriate, and he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Jesus always handled things perfectly, justly. Uh, and that is something that we have to keep in mind. So what does all this mean for us? I would say, number one, we must always include the soul sufferings of Christ when we think about the sufferings of Jesus. It's not enough to think about the physical pain. Think about the anguish of heart that he had to bear all through his life. It says in Isaiah 53, he shall see the of the fruit of the travail of his soul, the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. That is a lifetime of living and dealing with sinners. 
He comes as a sinless person into a place full of sin. All people around him. And he has to deal with all of them perfectly, justly, fairly, and he does. This is a part of his work. I think about a champion athlete. You, you look at the Olympics and you see these people who win the gold and you, you realize, wait, he didn't just do this in a, you know, 40 seconds, you know, because he ran the race or whenever he... No, no, no. There's an entire lifetime of practice and discipline and exercise over and over, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times for that moment. That's the same thing with Jesus. When he goes to that cross, that moment, when he expends himself, that was after thousands and thousands and thousands of moments of obedience to the God who he answered to. And so, keep that in mind. Secondly, we have a Savior who certainly understands our anguish of soul. You know, we think about what goes through our hearts when our children disappoint us or a loved one abandons us. And we go, oh, this is so awful. Look, Jesus went through the same sort of thing. You can come to him. He certainly understands it. And probably at, at deeper levels than you. Remember, he was sinless. For us, we're a bunch of sinners, so, you know, hey, we kind of expect sin because we sin. Not him. He was perfect. And so here you have somebody who totally understands you. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can receive mercy because he understands us. He knows your pain. Number three, we have to value Christ as the only qualified Savior. Nobody else in the history of the world lived perfectly like he did in the midst of this fallen place. He is the only qualified Savior. Uh, I, I was wondering why Rolex washes were so expensive. So I looked it up. Well, you know, a Rolex watch will cost you uh, a Daytona, if you got buy a new one, $84,995. One watch. Now, why? Well, I looked that up, too, and they make all these, you know, it's kind of secretive, this whole company. But anyway, they use a certain kind of steel. It's harder and shinier. Their dials are made of white gold. Their bezels are ceramic. Uh, the numbers themselves are sandblasted with platinum. Uh, the movements in the bezel include true, real gemstones. I mean, you see the quality is in there. Uh, they have this spring. It's called the hairspring. That actually is the mechanical thing that makes the watch function. It's unique alloy. Uh, there's uh, nibonium or something here, zirconium, oxygen, anodized to stop the process of oxidation. It's insensitive to magnetic fields and temperatures and shocks and corrosion. In other words, the quality is in the watch. Now, you can pay $84,000 or $85,000 for this watch, or you can buy a replica for $241. Okay, it looks exactly the same, but it's not made with the same materials. And it's not a Rolex. It doesn't have the quality of a Rolex. Now, you may have a so-called savior in mind 
who uh, is sort of like a rabbit's foot. Oh, yeah, I got Jesus up there along with everybody else. That is not going to be good enough. You need this Savior. You need this Savior who suffered every moment perfectly, obeyed perfectly all through his life. This is the quality, the only quality, quote-unquote, Savior uh, that is out there. And then the more we learn of him, the more we should love him. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The more you see of this Jesus, and you can see more and more of him every day as you read the word and as you pray and you look to him, and you listen to sermons and you read and so on, you find depths of wonder in this person that you wouldn't see otherwise. And as you do, you love him more and more. Now I think about my own marriage, okay, there she is, 23, beautiful. I go, okay, hmm. Let's check. Let's check this out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we move from there, the, the look, to, wow, look how smart she is. Wow, what a great sense of humor. Wow, she laughs at my jokes. Wow, wow. Uh, look at her character. Boy, she loves the Lord. She's committed herself to the same God I have committed myself to. She has a relationship with the living God like I do. Look at her mom, her dad. I mean, you know, you, the first look is one thing, but then you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and you find beauties and wonders and things you adore and, and appreciate and love about somebody as you go deeper and deeper, and you love them more and more. And then you have the history of life together. Yeah. So that's the way it is with Jesus. You love him when you first come to know him, but then you love him more and more as you learn more things about what he's done and what he's doing for you. And then finally, we should enter this world full of sinners and full of difficult people, especially if you're in ministry or connected to any you know, numbers of people that are, you're trying to disciple and help and grow, and expect it to be difficult. But know that the Savior who went through the same thing is with you. And he'll give you the wisdom. He'll give you the grace to help shepherd your family, help deal with the people at work, help handle your extended family, help, help you in every situation where you've got difficult people around. By the grace of God, may we learn these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a, a Savior who suffered and who dealt with life perfectly in every way, not only the physical, but also the mental, the psychological, the deep level of pain that sometimes comes in this world. He experienced it all, and he did it so that we, he did it for us, not for himself, he did it for us, that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for such a Savior. We just praise you that we know him. And if there's anybody here who's not trusting in Christ, who's looking to their own way of dealing with life as the uh, way of getting right with God, no, no. May they turn to you. May they say, I am a sinner. I have failed in all these relationships, one way or another. But he is my perfect 
substitute. He's my second Adam. He's the seed of the woman that I trust in to save me and to give me life eternal. We pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.